new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two or three times. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a truly interesting show for you today, so my friends, once more, into the fray. First and foremost, I want to acknowledge that Monday was World Ocean Day. In celebration of that, our conversation today will center around... You guessed it, the ocean. Now, as we start, imagine with me for a second, it's 2015. The alarm on your phone rings, you reach over and slap it. Groggily, you roll out of bed and into the shower. There, you use the same shampoo you always have. Now, it's a busy day and you're cruising along in your career, so instead of sitting there eating breakfast after you dress, you quickly brush your teeth, run out the door, and hop in your car. It's going to be a hot day, so instead of the usual black coffee, you ask for an iced soy latte at the local coffee shop. Your first meeting day is with an important client, so you avoid the infamous milk stash by grabbing a straw as you head out the door to begin your commute. As you get to the office, you shove your empty cup into an overstuffed recycle bin outside, rush in, and start your day. Now, why did I tell you that story? Especially when celebrating World Ocean Day. Well, let's look at that from a different angle. That shampoo you've always used and feels like it works great has tiny plastic pieces called microbeads. These, after giving your head a nice exfoliating scrub, go down the drain, never to be thought of again. The same goes for your toothpaste, as those little microbeads you never knew were there helped shine your million-dollar smile. Next, that cup you threw in the overly stuffed bin and forgot about, Well, that got blown out as a gust of cool air burst from the office when you opened the door and proceeded to roll across the parking lot, stepped over by the crowd of folks rushing in to beat their boss into the office for the day. Now, I think you might understand what I'm getting at. And this sets the premise for today's paper, which is titled The First Evidence of Plastic Fallout from the North Pacific Garbage Patch. However, I know last week when we discussed the positive effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on climate change, which, if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go back and do so. It was a very number-heavy show, so I'll take it a little bit easier on you this week. Before we go at the macro level, let's reanalyze our story one more time at the micro level. So let's look at those micro beads first. The reason our story was set in 2015 is that, thankfully, at least in the United States, that was the year H.R. 1321 passed in the U.S. House. It went on to pass in the U.S. Senate and become law in December of 2015. Now, it was called the Microbead Free Waters Act of 2015, and it prohibited the manufacturing, packaging, and distribution of rinse-off cosmetics containing plastic microbeads, which are usually produced from polyethylene. Now, Canada and the United Kingdom have also passed similar legislation, but those are the only three countries in the world that have. These microbeads fall under the category of microplastics, which is essentially two categories, both less than five millimeters in size. 
the first being production or plastic specifically manufactured at that size, and the other post-production or pieces of plastic that were once large that have broken down into smaller sizes through solar degradation or other physical forces. Note, however, the Microbead Free Waters Act did not address plastic nurdles or pre-production plastic pellets used in the manufacture of larger pieces, despite these being a significant cause of anthropogenic pollution. So, now, to put this in real-world terms, a study was published in Nature in 2015 that found between Indonesia and the United States, the two places they studied, close to 25% of all the fish had anthropogenic debris in them. And in Indonesia, 100% of that debris was plastic. Just think about that for a second. The next time you and your partner meet another couple for dinner at a nice seafood restaurant, chances are one of you is eating fish that digested plastic. Sure, you might not find plastic in your teeth after dinner, but keep in mind as plastics degrade, chemicals, some toxic, can be released into the surrounding medium. Oh, and don't just say, well, then I'll have the scallops, because there it's like one in three, not one in four. Now, on to the straw. I know there's a lot of controversy here, and I even had a conversation a few weeks ago with someone saying that my choice to not use plastic straws had a negligible impact on the environment. Were they right? Yes, in a way. However, I don't eat out a lot, so I'm not a significant contributor in the first place. But the average American uses 1.6 plastic straws a day. Now, it must be a pretty short drink that only requires three-fifths of a straw, but I'm guessing that's a whole other debate entirely. Anyway, the individual I debated admitted that it was a positive rallying cry, but claimed that my individual choice didn't matter. Even Senator Elizabeth Warren of the United States made the claim that the anti-straw movement was a distraction from the fossil fuel industry. Well, With all the respect to Senator Warren and my personal challenger, let's look at the numbers. In July of 2018, Starbucks decided to phase out all plastic straws in their 28,000 plus stores by the end of this year. This singular action alone cut 13,000 metric tons of plastic or 1 billion, yes, with a B, straws from the potential sources of plastic pollution in our oceans a year. And because straws are in the top 10 items found in beach cleanups around the world, this is, you may say, significant. Now, did Starbucks do this because of me? Hell no. Did they do it because there were a lot of people like me that made a commitment? Damn skippy they did. And did it make a noticeable impact? Well, that's where folks like to argue. Now, this is just Starbucks. In America alone, 500 million plastic straws are used daily. So, to Senator Warren and my talented debater, you're right. As a fraction, my personal usage doesn't even hit the radar. To be honest, Starbucks' commitment only affects one half of a percent of the plastic straws in use in the United States alone. So, if your argument is purely over percentages... You're right. I don't statistically make a difference. But as the surfer at Winky Pop, the swimmer at Cape Cod, the paddleboarder in the Maldives, or the sailor off the Ionian Islands can tell you, even a single straw can change the magic of the ocean. And to the sea turtle that mistakenly eats that single straw and dies, 
Betcha he didn't feel like a rounding error. So do you want to play by the numbers or by impact? Well, that's your choice. But I prefer to make sure it's not because of me that that turtle found a straw. From here, let's leave the micro level and go to the macro level. Now, many, if not most of you, have likely heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or the Pacific Garbage Vortex. To the uninitiated, no, the Pacific Garbage Vortex is not some pizza box, plastic peanut, and baby bell cheese wax version of the Sharknado. Rather, it's a gyre caused by the circular currents in the major ocean basins. Contrary to popular belief, it's not some island of pure floatsome where once you sail into it, you can no longer see water through the trash. Rather, it's an area of higher garbage concentration as compared to the rest of the ocean. Can you see it from space? No. Is it twice the size of Texas? Well, that's hard to say. Can't we just go and pick it all up? Not really. Did I just blow up everything you seem to know about the garbage patch? Pretty sure I did. First off, you can't see it from space because it's less of a rat's flotilla and more like, uh, shall we say, pepper and soup. The majority, 92% of the mass, comes from objects bigger than a pencil eraser. But 94% of the total objects fall into the microplastics category that we discussed earlier. Okay, so what you're telling me makes sense, but why is the media wrong about its size, you're asking? Well, that's because you have to be in it to measure it. Since you can't see it from space and the ocean is constantly moving and about as likely to hold still while you measure it as you are to get all your kids to smile nicely in one picture. Ergo, while we can make some reasonable estimates, giving it an exact size is a little tricky. Finally, why can't we just go and pick it all up? Well, that's where it gets super fascinating and enter our highlighted research paper today. Now, this study looked at the great disappearing act of the 99%. Huh? You're saying? Well, from the onset of mass plastic production, there's been tens of millions of metric tons of buoyant plastics that have entered the world's oceans. Based on observations and direct measurements, current estimates are only that tens of thousands of metric tons are afloat today. In other words, less than 1% of buoyant plastic that has escaped your hurried throw into the recycling bin and found its way into the world's oceans from the onset of mass production is still floating. Well, where the hell did the 99% go? That, my friend, is a great question in what the paper tried to answer. Now, the study looked at five locations between Honolulu and Rosarita, Mexico, traversing the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which has boundaries defined by concentrations of greater than one kilogram per square kilometer of debris, and took both surface samples as well as trawled down to 2,000 meters. While the boundary layer of one kilogram per square kilometer doesn't sound like much, know that peak concentrations are in the hundreds of kilograms per square kilometer with a numerical count of pieces in the millions. But before we get too deep looking for the missing 99%, keep in mind that a recent whole ocean emission transport degradation model estimated that approximately 66% of the plastic that enters the ocean ends up beached or stranded on the shorelines around the world. Yeah, kiss the idea of ever finding a pristine remote exotic beach somewhere these days. If it's pristine, it's because someone likely cleaned it for you. And if it's remote, chances are you're going to find garbage on the beach. 
Now, this still only accounts for about two-thirds of the plastic. So now let's look for the rest of it. The hypothesis going into this study was, quote, this apparent loss of small microplastics suggests that there are size-selective sink mechanisms at play, removing floating microplastic debris from the surface waters. A possible sink mechanism of microplastics is the colonization by organisms, i.e. biofouling, which can reduce the buoyancy of small floating plastic fragments, characterized by higher surface-to-volume ratios, eventually resulting in a positive settling velocity for initially buoyant particles. In deep water layers, the debris can subsequently undergo defouling, allowing the plastic to repeatedly sink and then resurface as floating debris, end quote. How they controlled the experiment to prevent contamination of their samples is fascinating, but in the interest of time, I won't dive into them here. Rather, suggest you pop over and read the report, which is always linked on south at 2 degreesorg However, their findings were fascinating as the study provided the first ever 3D model, if you will, of the ocean's plastics. As the samples were taken, all of the plastic found on the surface was polyethylene and polypropylene where at depth, in addition to those, polyvinyl chloride and polystyrene were also found. And while surface concentrations increased as they traversed the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, as one would expect, this was the first study to provide a visualization of the water column below it. Plastic particles greater than 500 micrometers were found down to 1,749 meters, with the depth increasing as a positive correlation of the increased surface concentrations. Because of this study, we are much better equipped to estimate subsurface concentrations based on surface measurements alone. This study found that approximately 10% of the total plastic mass in any one location was below 5 meters in depth. However, while this study did find where some of the missing plastic has gone, it didn't evaluate where the bits were moving to or where the remaining missing percentages had gone either to eventually sink to the bottom or if there's a subsurface concentration layer somewhere that forms as a result of the ocean's movement. Further study is definitely needed, but this study will likely be cited widely in the future as researchers look deeper into the plastics of our ocean. The takeaway? As hard as it is to stomach the fact we cannot physically undo the harm we have already done is that we can take steps to reduce any and all single-use plastics that could eventually find their way into the oceans in the future. Whether you're part of a Fortune 500 corporation, a decent-sized environmental nonprofit, or just a mom that organizes local schools to do beach cleanup days, we can all do something that has a physical impact, even if statistically... What you do by yourself doesn't matter. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I truly hope you enjoyed it, gained something from it, and I look forward to having you back again with me next week. Until then, stay safe. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, let's keep it south of two degrees.